1: There are few people who bring a level of enthusiasm like my guest today. He is one of my favorites. He's Mike Massimino, former astronaut, and we spoke about the events of this past month. One of the great things that you bring to a conversation is that you know how to teach about space. That's, and, and That's very kind, flattering. You Thank you. Of, you kind of do it, too, up at Columbia. I so, do it hey,
0: as best I can.
1: What, what, did, what did the last week mean to you?
0: Uh, it was uh, a really very special week for me um, with all the things that were going on. A lot of the programs, the discussions, the discussion you and I had about it um, brought back a lot of the memories. I was down at the Kennedy Space Center. Um, also getting to know the, the men who were involved, I got to know, um, I, I think I met almost all the moonwalkers. But I've become uh, friendly with Mike Collins. I, I've, I met uh, Neil Armstrong I, I I kind of gotten to know Buzz a little bit, been better friends with guys like Alan Bean and Charlie Duke and Harrison Schmidt, and th- getting to meet those heroes, it, now realizing, you know, when I, when I was six years old, watching them walk on the moon and idolizing all mm-hmm. of those men wanting to grow up to be like them well, and then having just, a chance to let me
1: just stop you there you're to you're, know them you're how old today
0: I am 56 years old
1: so when you were six years old you watched the landing on the
0: moon I did and you remember that very clearly I remember the whole mood I, I remember the launch I remember seeing and I remember learning about them and going to the library and reading everything I could about about those guys and uh, they I wanted I, I wanted to grow up to be like them not just for what they were doing but for me who they were and what they represented. I thought they were the ultimate American hero. Uh, they showed, to me, they represented everything that was good in the world. And I, I felt as a little boy, that's that's what, that's what the way I wanted to be. Well,
1: you felt that they represented everything that was good in the world? I
0: did. I, I, I felt like what they were doing was, um, to me it was like, one of the, you know, the people I admired, my father worked for the New York City Fire Department. And I remember growing up, and learning about what, what policemen and firemen did and people in the military, what they did to help people and serve the country and serve others. And to me, the astronaut was kind of, in my opinion, like the ultimate of that. You know, they, were, they got to do some really cool stuff. They got to explore. But yet they were doing something that was uh, good for the world.
1: Did and, you make a career decision when you were six
0: years old? I, I formed a dream back back then, Bill, and that became my passion But I didn't do much about it. As I got a little older and I started learning about myself and realizing more about the reality of what they did, um, it became to me something that I thought was impossible, that I could never do that. I I didn't see myself as being one of those people that could do that. And I kind of crossed it off the list of uh, career career possibilities Mm -hmm. until I got out of college really. When I was a senior in college, I saw the movie The Right Stuff. That came out that year, and that rekindled my interest. I read the book, and I started learning more about what was going on. At that time, it was the mid-'80s with the space shuttle program flying, and I I found out it was different and that the astronauts now were were, were different than they were. They weren't just military test pilots. They were still that, but there were so many other things.
1: You know, I would think about the level of patriotism that the whole moon mission brought to America Mm -hmm. because you've got a parallel race at that point with the Soviet Union.
0: Yeah, it That's, was huge. It was the Cold War. It was the way, in some ways, that we were competing with the Russians, uh, the Soviet Union, at that time. And now we cooperate with the Russians in space and with other countries as multinational, of course, international space station. But, but they
1: were beating but us that, on some things. They
0: were ahead. Yeah, they were. They launched Sputnik and shocked the world with that. Uh, that was the first it's satellite. Sixty-one. Yeah, uh, I think it was in a. Well, we should check the dates. Okay. we got somebody <laughs> that can do that, wasn't it? That might have been fifty-nine. <laughs> okay. I think that was still the fifties. The end of the 50s. Um, I think Eisenhower was still president then. But they, the first uh, man in space, uh, Yuri Gagarin, I think that was 1961. And then we followed with, with um, a few, uh, we meaning, the, I wasn't even born, but the United States followed with uh, Alan Shepard a few months later. Or a few weeks later, not very much later, about a month later.
1: What did, what did Neil Armstrong mean to you?
0: Uh, he, to me, he was the, uh, the ultimate hero. Um, I, I idolized him. He was my, my heroes. Growing up were Neil Armstrong, Tom Seaver who was a baseball fan, and my dad. Those are my those are my three heroes growing up. And uh, Neil Armstrong to me just uh, epitomized what what a a, a person should be. Mm-hmm. I thought he was uh, he was uh, talented using uh, using his talents for the for the better of of uh, humanity. Uh, I thought he was a really cool guy. And uh, he was also very humble um, as i got as I grew older and learned a little more about him, and I got to meet him after I became an astronaut. I realized he was all about doing the job, never wanted to profit from what he had done never 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 um, uh, capitalized on his on his position. He felt very humbled of what he was asked to do and never capitalized on it uh, on, really in a financial way. Yeah. It was really interesting; he felt like he was doing his job, and it wouldn 't be right for him to 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 make something of it i i I think in that way he wanted to tell people about it he wanted to help people with however he could but he was a very unique individual and the absolute i think right guy to be the first man to walk on the moon.
1: Wapakoneta, ohio
0: right um small place small town yeah
1: moved to cincinnati and that's where he raised his family yep and that's where tom Seaver had his only no hitter (laughs)
0: Is that right? As, Wait, a, Cincinnati as a Cincinnati Red, red. that's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, how do you like that? Uh, well, being Ohio, a, being an Ohio <laughs> yeah, guy, you're from Ohio. It, yeah, I didn't know that.
1: Always comes We're back. Where in Ohio? Cincinnati.
0: All right, good for you. So for there me, there you I, go. All, all roads wow. lead back to Yeah, he, the, taught, he taught at the University of Cincinnati yeah. after he was an astronaut. So John F, John
1: F. Kennedy gets in front of the microphone and he challenges America to get to the moon in the early yeah. 1960s. How, how big of a climb do you think that was over a decade?
0: That that was huge. At at that time, I don't I don't think we had very much experience in space. I think he made that statement right after Shepard's uh, launch, which was a 15-minute flight suborbital. They didn't even put him in orbit. The Russians put Gagarin in orbit. Uh, we weren't able to do that yet. It took with the third flight when Glenn, John Glenn, went up on the third person in space, where he orbited the, the planet. So we didn't have very much experience at that point, and we were just starting to build up that infrastructure and try to collect a team that can make these things happen. The technology was not there by a long shot. We needed huge rockets. We needed to be able to spacewalk. The spacesuits were needed to be developed. The computing that would be needed, navigation, everything needed to be built. And that was that challenge was to do that by the end of the decade, mm-hmm. which at that point was about eight years and eight or nine years in the future. So this
1: was really this was trying to summit Mount Everest without oxygen.
0: This was inc- it was incredible. Yeah, it was it was pretty much impossible. It would I don't know what the equivalent today would be, um, but but it would it was pretty much an impossible a challenge that they, uh, that they were given. And speaking to the people who were, who were there, my friend Alan Bean spoke to our astronaut class or we were early on, and a lot of the moonwalkers and Gene Kranz and uh, Chris Kraft and the other historical figures from the Apollo days came and shared their stories with, uh, with us as new astronauts when I, when I first joined. And they still do that, the guys who are still left. And remember, Alan Bean came and said that he felt, he, what he told, one of the first things he said was, is that you hear here at NASA and what NASA's about is doing the impossible. And you're gonna be asked sometime during your career as astronauts to do something that you think is impossible. And that's the way we felt about going to the moon. But remember, it's not impossible if you work together and you have a team where people think differently. Not everyone can think the same, so you have to be open to other ideas and being able to work together with good teamwork and leadership Anything is possible. And all of a sudden, it's not impossible. It's just really, really hard. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: You mentioned the movie The Right Stuff. What yeah. was the film out about a year ago? Was it First Man with Neil yeah. Armstrong? Yeah. Did, was, was, was that a good representation? How did you view that? I
0: really liked it. Uh-huh. It was more about him. I'm not a film critic, right, Bill? But yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> But I liked it. I like, I like space movies. As long as the astronaut yeah. looks cool. I really don't care well, if it's apparently factual or not. Brad
1: but. Pitt's got a new
0: movie coming. That's that's out a, right. I think he does. Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking he's going to be a cool and astronaut. The, the,
1: the premise is that he goes into space to find his father.
0: Really? Yeah. Okay. Was he?
1: Have have oh, you? I don't uh, know. That's all I know about. All right. Okay. It. I just saw it on a website. But I
0: lost the guy. <laughs>
1: have you seen the movie Interstellar?
0: I have. That's yeah. a little complicated, and, and I think I think Matthew McConaughey that, that character, not him necessarily, but the character was a little bit too serious and nervous. That's, that's the impression I got. It was a very complicated movie, but I kind, interesting. I
1: kind of enjoyed it to try and figure I, out what's on the other side of the wall. Yeah, and that's yeah. what that movie was about. Yeah, I right? saw that
0: three times and still, I'm not really sure what was going on. <laughs> but I did like, you know, the, I, you know, I liked, uh, I liked Gravity because I thought George Clooney was a pretty cool astronaut, and uh, The Martian was good because uh, the astronauts are cool there as well. Uh-huh. So I just look at how the astronauts are depicted. <laughs> I love it. So, so uh, that's really my major concern in, in these space so movies. you
1: have been to space twice. Yeah. For those so many of us who have not had that experience, what are we missing?
0: I think uh, what what is gained by going there, in addition to the science and the engineering and the accomplishments that way uh, for the world, I think what is gained is a different perspective. And seeing our planet, I, I think our planet is very beautiful from – you and I were talking about different places to go – you know, pretty you know, just about going to different mm-hmm. places in, in the country and around the world. We just had this conversation about where you might go on vacation and so on. There are very beautiful there are beautiful places around this country and around our planet that we can see. But I really think that the true beauty of our planet is seen from space. And it gives you a different perspective of who we are. When I when I viewed the planet from space, it changed my it changed my vision of the planet. I think we are living in an absolute paradise. I think we are very, very lucky to be here. I can't imagine any place more beautiful than our planet. I do think there might be life out there somewhere. In fact, I, we haven't found each other yet, but I can't imagine any place more yeah. beautiful than our planet. And also the concept of that, we're, we're all citizens of the planet. I grew up thinking I was from my neighborhood in New York. Then I was a New Yorker. You know, when I was in college, I represented myself. I thought I was a New Yorker. And then, of course, as an astronaut, I, I'm an American. I have the American flag on my shoulder. And I, I'm always going to be all those things. But I think after seeing our planet, I also think of myself really as a citizen of our planet Earth. And we're yeah. all that. That is our home. My home is Earth.
1: You knew Gene Cernan?
0: I met him uh, a few times. Okay. Yes. Gene Cernan I didn't know him was, very well, but I knew him a few. T- I met I, him a few times. I
1: think it was the last man.
0: He was the last man to step off the moon. So Gene Cernan was number 11 and then Jack Schmidt was number 12. But Jack went in first. So Gene was the last guy to step so foot off was the moon. So this
1: 72, 73? I think 72.
0: Sometime in 72. He, um, told, we got to check these dates.
1: Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> we had yeah. to. Are we right on that? 72, 72. Right, our expert Bing. says. Excellent. Uh, circle gets a square. Uh, <laughs> he told us a story one time about uh-huh. how he determined that there is a God. Really? And that is when he was in space, uh-huh. circling the moon and looking back. Wow. at It's great vastness mm-hmm. in front of him that was yeah. all black and all dark. Yeah. And there was this one shining bluish greenish yeah. orb in the yeah. distance, and and that was Earth.
0: Yes. Uh yeah, I think I think it's from from a religious standpoint, I think if you're a religious person, you might interpret what you see religiously, and if not, I think because I've, I've flown with people who are very religious and people who not so much, you know, not believers, and they all they're all good people, of course, but they they view things differently. I think I'm somewhere in between, but I will say this: I, 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 if you are a believer, um, seeing our planet from space would make you think that whoever is, whoever created this for us really loves us. Because they gave us a very nice home to live in, kind of like as a parent, you want to give your kids a nice place to live. Well, if you if you're a believer and you believe in God, you can rest assured that uh, we were given the nicest house on the block, mm-hmm. and they want That's us to be happy.
1: So well stated. What is it like to do a spacewalk? What what do you feel? What are these sensations around
0: you? The, uh, it is uh, it is a, 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 a for me it was a much different experience than being inside the spaceship. The uh, the, the, there's two things I'd want to tell you. But one is just the view, the overpowering view of being out there. Once you you're not restricted to look through a window any longer. You're in, you can look through your visor. You see the bright sunlight. You see this as really bright. You see the darkness when you go over the planet as as really truly like the absence of light. And the beauty of our planet is is all in front of you. You can look anywhere you want. So it's it's kind of like being inside, maybe looking out at a. At a, at a, the scene in the playground, and then you go outside, and all of a sudden the whole sky opens mm-hmm. up. That's what it was. I felt like the whole universe had opened up to me. Um, and then the other thing was, my, what I I'm like, wow, I really feel like a spaceman because when I was inside the spaceship, you know, you're you're in your spaceship, but then you take that off and you're kind of in regular clothes, floating around and doing your thing, and and looking through the window, it's kind of like uh, looking through a. I'd make the analogy of looking at an aquarium. I look at the pretty fish. Uh, that's it's very pretty. Mm-hmm. The scene of fish. And then the going spacewalking is like becoming a scuba diver. Now you're in that environment and you're interacting with that environment. Wow. And I was wearing a spacesuit, but I really felt it was me out there by myself. You know, here I am with me. I mean, there was a guy with my buddy was, was with me. Mike Good was with me, you know, and we were seeing each other and all that. But because you, you never go diving without a buddy, right? And you don't go spacewalk without a buddy either, with you out there. Plenty of people helping you, of course. But I really felt like I was interacting with that environment. I really felt like a spaceman. It's, it's, uh, that was a feeling I had, like, holy cow, now I'm really in space. And
1: that's the book you wrote,
0: Spaceman. Spaceman, that's right. <laughs> Thanks for the plug, man. You're so smart. I wouldn't even have thought of that. It's quiet yeah. when you're out there. It is. You can't, uh, you, the only sound you have is what's coming in over your com cap. Uh, you have a, a headphones on, more or less, and a, it, it, we call it a Snoopy cap because it looks like, you know, Snoopy ears that you're wearing, but... uh but you hear that, whatever crackle or the words that are coming to you that you hear from the ground control team or from the astronauts who are helping inside, uh, and you hear just the hum of a fan uh, from fan noise. But you can be banging all you want outside on the spaceship or doing your work, and you're not going to hear anything
1: mm-hmm. because
0: sound has no medium to travel in space. There's no air. We can hear each other without the microphones here because we can, we can, the air uh, carries, our, carries sounds. There's no air in, in space yeah. so when outside what, of you you have air inside a little bit of oxygen yeah. inside to
1: breathe. what is the sensation of liftoff
0: uh, it is uh, it, it on the shuttle it moved very very quickly on um, uh, for the, the looking at the Apollo missions it seemed like the the space the uh, the rocket was kind of almost lumbering off the pad very slowly but with the shuttle it moved very quickly we had solid rockets on the side uh, like giant sticks of dynamite and when they lit the whole stack moved immediately and uh, very abruptly. So it's a, you know, you move, and you know you're going very quickly, 100 miles an hour when you reach the top, before you even clear the tower, and you go from zero to 17,500 miles an hour in eight and a half minutes. So you're just just screaming. What's the
1: G-force on that?
0: The G-forces aren't that bad, and you're taking them through the chest. That's why we we are lying down when we launch, because the G-force, you can take it through the chest much better than if you're sitting. If you're sitting like in an airplane, and we could take high G, and you can only usually do that for a couple seconds, uh, and you've got to hopefully be wearing a G suit or, or grunting because the blood can, the, the gravity will suck the blood out of your head, and you can pass out in, when you're in sitting if you're sitting upright. But on and laying down on your on your back, you can take it in the chest, and uh, we had three Gs uh, of three Gs, so three times the force of gravity was hitting us in the chest for about two and a half minutes at the end, no, of, the, only, only at the end of the launch. Only three Gs. Only three Gs, which isn't bad. We had it for two and a half minutes, so it's longer than you would normally yeah. take G for. Uh, so it's, but it's like having three big dudes sitting on so, your chest. yeah,
1: it's it's longer than being in an F-16 or being, F-16 or being a fire pilot, which can push you right. to seven wanna, or eight Gs. Right,
0: exactly. In our airplanes, even on our T-38s, we could get up to six or seven Gs, but usually only momentarily. And you would grunt and, and know that was yeah. coming and prepare yourself for that. But but you're when you're depending on your body position where where it's easier for us to take G forces lying down because you get it in the chest you feel it it's like having a pile yeah. of bricks on your chest but it's not going to hurt you I've never thought about that yeah that's great yeah
1: you've you've orbited Earth yep clearly yeah you're a geography nut I'm guessing
0: uh to a more, degree well you know I don't when I'm in space I am like uh-huh. what is that I didn't even know that was Madagascar well, you know, that, that that was so, my yeah, question yeah. I
1: wanted to know from you. Mm-hmm what 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 is there an image looking down on earth that you recall with greater clarity or you think wow that must be a really special place right there
0: um well the whole planet seems really special uh-huh. and and you can from a spacewalk especially you can turn your head in one direction and see the planet and then look in the other direction and see the vastness of of space and realize that we're pretty, I'd, I'd rather be over here. <laughs> it's really, it, 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 it looks like a place if you were a, a voyager coming from another world and you would happen upon Earth, you'd be like, wow, I want to check that place out. That's how beautiful it is. Yeah. So I think in general, our, our planet is beautiful. As far as memories, I have so many uh, from orbiting, mainly looking out the window, uh, listening to music. And one of the things that, that stayed with me that was just beautiful was coming over Australia at night Lightning storms lighting up the clouds below, uh, beautiful stars above us, and the horizon, the thin horizon, uh, the thin atmosphere in the distance. Wow. Yeah. Do you have a song on at that moment? Uh, I do. There were, there were a lot of, I listened to uh, a lot of Radiohead in space, um, uh, some Genesis, Phil Collins, Sting, U2. Uh, that, that was my favorite music. And also some soundtracks. Thomas Newman, who's a composer, Meet Joe Black. John Barry's "Dances with Wolves." Some of those soundtracks, those like epic movie soundtracks, went really well with uh, with the Ah, scene outside. That's that's beautiful. Wow.
1: You could argue that 1969 was the golden age. I could argue that 2019 is the golden
0: age. Let's go with that because it's now. Uh, Do you you (laughs) believe it? Of space travel? Yeah. I think. I think. Well, I think 1969, because of what happened with the moon is going to be marked in history. And I realized this as a little kid. I thought, I remember thinking very clearly on the launch day of Apollo 11 that this was the most important thing that had happened in 500 years. That's just what I felt about it. I felt you go back to the explorers discovering the new world. That was what we were learning about in school when I was in first grade. That was 500 years earlier. And I felt like this was the most important thing that happened since then. This is just my opinion as a little boy and that this was going to be the most important thing that's going to happen for the next 500 years. At 500 years from now... Little kids were going to be learning about this day. That's what I felt about it, and I still feel about that that way. I don't think we're ever going to top it, mm-hmm. but I do think we are coming into more of a, of a maybe a golden age where space travel will become more commonplace. Th-
1: that's why I asked and that question. That, that's I
0: do feel about that. But I think we're kind of like we're you know back in the in the, in the early days of aviation where it was used by governments or for barnstorming. We really didn't know what to make of the airplane at the time, right? It was more of a of a uh, and that's the way there's a lot of technology. Cars, when they first came out, they thought they were a gimmick. The motor car, and now you know, what, look at the role that's had throughout history. And airplanes, I think, were the same way. We really didn't know what to make of it, and now we have a thriving airline industry. People are traveling all over the place. I think that's where we are right now. We're in that kind of transferring from where mainly governments are sending people to space, flying uh, flying things in space, and uh, and maybe it's you know trying to figure going from the barnstorming government area uh, um, era. Into where it's now going to be a thriving so, space business.
1: J- J- Jeff Bezos is into this. Elon yeah. Musk is into it. There's right. a lot of money in this. Branson, uh, uh, yep. yeah, right. Branson, <laughs> I, you could argue when they're very early stages of private space yes. travel. Yep. Um, I, I thought it was extraordinary that Elon Musk could have a project where he fires off a rocket and he he lands the boosters. Yeah. On a floating barge I, I, in the Pacific Ocean.
0: Bill, I agree with you. I, I remember pro- it was probably about fifteen years ago when SpaceX first started um, with their planning. I can't remember exactly when that was, but about that order, 10, 15 years ago. And I remember getting brief. We just our, we'd have these office meetings every Monday morning, eight o'clock. We had our astronaut office meeting. You know, all hands on deck, so figure out what was going on that week. And uh, I remember getting a someone gave a briefing on you know what was was SpaceX was doing and what they planned to do. And I remember thinking, sitting there in that room, I didn't open my mouth, but what I was thinking was, there's no way this is going to happen. Because I was using the model that I was familiar with in my head. What, when
1: was that? What this year? This
0: was about, about you know, 12 to 15 years ago. Okay. Something like that. You're saying no way. I'm thinking, myself there's no way. Because in my head, the way we got people to space was the way we did it when I was a little boy looking at Apollo. And then what I knew about the space sh- shuttle it was this huge enormous government project that required almost endless resources uh, to recover a shuttle the, the backup you know knowing about the little things you might not well big things you might not know about like abort landing sites all over the world for the space shuttle if we had a problem then we needed people to land us in uh, southern Europe in northern Africa uh, abort sites up the it had to be activated. All over the world, pretty much, and they had to, may may have to come look for us in the middle of the ocean if we had to bail out, and just that alone, I was like, you know, this is not something a company can do. You know, you need a government that can do this. It's expensive. It's huge, and you need a gigantic organization and lots of contractors to do this. It's like, there's no way they're going to be able to do mm-hmm. it. And look what's happened. They are. I think they've taken what NASA has done and learned from those from those lessons. That taking that technology. A lot of my friends are working at these places. A lot of my students. Now, from Columbia, go work there. They've got a lot of talented people there. And they've been able to do things that I thought were impossible. The return of the booster um, is really uh, important. Uh, I've heard Jeff Bezos tell me that he felt that, for you know, it always frustrated him for years that he's about my age, right? So he can remember the Apollo missions. And what happened after they launched that magnificent rocket ship, it ended up in the bottom of the ocean, right? All those giant engines, all that technology that was on board. And and to him, I think it's found it frustrating because— why not take that technology and return it somewhere where you can just fill it with gas again and use it over again? Why throw all that away? And that's why the reusability and the shuttle was reusable. The shuttle itself, the solid rocket boosters, the only thing we got rid of that was a one-time use was the external tank. But it was the first attempt at that, and it was a bit expensive. I think they've been able to take those lessons from the space shuttle and apply them to what they're doing and improve on them. Mm. So it really will be cost-effective to be well, reusable.
1: Two more questions. I, look, I— I could ask you a hundred more questions.
0: Yeah, but your readers are going to go to sleep after a while. Our listeners, I mean, your listeners yeah, are gonna, two, not your readers. That's right. They're not reading this, um, I hope.
1: Uh, how soon or how long before you have private space travel? Before someone can cut a check for fifty or hundred thousand dollars and have that space experience?
0: Well, that's kind of already happened. People have bought tickets, for example, on uh, Virgin Galactic on Richard Branson. But they spaceship. haven't gone up yet. Now he's got he's had a couple successful uh, launches. Um, Friend of mine, C.J. Sturkow, was one of. The, he was a four-time uh, shuttle astronaut, twice a commander, Marine Corps pilot. Good friend, good guy. He flew up on the first test flight into space with uh, Virgin Galactic. It was, I think, back in December. Then he had another flight with two uh, two other test pilots and a, a, a woman that worked with us at NASA, Beth Moses, who was one of our instructor engineers, who's now their like lead instructor there. They went up uh, again in uh, that was in February, I think. They had a, a, second, a, a second, but they, they've only, and right now they've only done their employees, their test pilots. I don't know when their next launch is planned, but I think they are going to be eventually launching people. I think relatively soon they'll be launching some of their paying is customers. It, is it a year? I think within a year they should be doing wow. that. It, that'll be that. That's suborbital. I also think that Blue, uh, Jeff Bezos' company is going to be doing that as well. They have not. I don't think they've sold any tickets yet. I think they're waiting to make sure everything works before they start doing that. <laughs> yeah. But I think pretty soon they'll be doing it as well. And I think. Uh, sort of the hybrid of of the government with the private sector with SpaceX and with Boeing, they have the commercial crew program launching astronauts again from the United States. We haven't done that since the shuttle program mm. retired back in 2011, but uh, they've they've been very successful they had a successful launch of the SpaceX vehicle. It was it was uncrewed, no people on board, um, but they're gonna they're gonna hopefully by the, hopefully by the end of the year both Boeing and SpaceX. We'll launch people to the space station. They don't make it by the end of the year. That's okay. You don't want to rush these things. Yeah, but I would say with definitely within the next year or two, we're going La- to be seeing all these things happen.
1: Last question for you: At age fifty-six, are you alive when we successfully take human beings to Mars?
0: Uh, I I hope so, uh, but uh, I don't know what kind of condition I might be in by then. Bill, I'm falling apart already. Uh, I I hope so. So, one's asking me when is it going to happen. Um, is it 10 yeah, years I hope so. or twenty years. I think years it's probably or... longer than that. I think we've got to stop kidding ourselves with this, you know, ten to fifteen year. I mean it's possible, but it's gonna take a real effort to do that. I think what's, what I what I think is more likely, and I, I no I'm not saying this is gonna happen, but I think what's more likely is to go back to the moon and use that, settle settle there, understand more about what it's like <clears throat> to live on a planetary surface for a long period of time. We know how to keep people healthy and functioning in low Earth orbit. Let's go to the moon next and deal with rocks and dust and a little bit of gravity and using the resources there to build habitats and then using the resources there to launch and go to Mars. So, yeah, I hope, in fact, let's hope, Bill, that we're we're both around uh, when that happens. I hope uh, in the next few – I would – you know, hopefully in the next few years – we get back to the moon, and hopefully in the next thirty years, which should be my life expectancy if I'm careful, mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not making any predictions there. I, Long so, yes, I hope so. Long,
1: Long Island's tough country there. So,
0: well, I don't live there anymore. Oh, you moved? Yeah, I'm in Manhattan now. Okay. Well, welcome so, to the big yeah, city. There you go. Hey,
1: buddy, I I really enjoy the knowledge you share with us.
0: Oh, it's it's, a, it's a pleasure talking with you, Bill, and it's fun yeah. to do it. This way. You know, we we did we do your show, and we got to hit it. We got a time you kicking me out. I get it. All right, we got to shut up and get out of here. So I'm glad yes. we had a little more time. Well, I, I want
1: you to know that we will do it again. Oh, uh, I love because to. Because there is so much to literally explore. There's
0: there's a lot going on, and I think our conversations as as time goes on with these new these new developments, particularly in the privatization of space travel, I think it's going to be a lot of excitement. Uh, at least for you and I. Amen. I don't know a lot of your listeners, but I think we'll enjoy it.
1: Amen. Mike Massimino, right. former astronaut. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. Bill. Thanks yeah. for having me. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmertown.